I'll join everybody else saying Happy New Year. And um, I don't make New Year's resolutions too often, but I do like to read the resolutions other people make. Um, saw some this week. Uh, one woman says she resolves to do less laundry and use more deodorant. Hopefully she's not sitting next to you. One guy says he's going to start uh, buying his lottery tickets at a luckier store. But my personal favorite one is the guy that says, I'm going to stop hanging out, uh, resolve to stop hanging out with people that ask me about my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> well, we're going to start a new series today, and uh, we'll introduce that in just a minute. Let's ask God for his help before we dive in. Uh, we do need your help, Father, um, the one who's made heaven and earth, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, our temptation is to look for help in so many other areas first, and then when those don't pan out, to turn to you. Maybe this year work in our lives in such a way that you are the first one we turn to in time of need, then increasingly we would see your resources as far or far superior to all the other resources we have, whether it's our money, whether it's medicine, whether it's friends, whether it's even the church. A lot of good things that you've given us, but you are, you are it. You are the one stands above and beyond all that has been created. And I pray that in the weeks ahead that we might perhaps see your majesty a bit greater than we have in the past. Um, perhaps some of the questions that not just others have, but that we have, uh, might be put to uh, bed or at least have some hooks on which we can hang some confidence we, uh, we see your greatness in this vast universe you've created. But most of all, in the amazing work that you have done, by exercising your justice completely while showing mercy and grace in giving us Jesus Christ. And uh, may this year be a, a year in which we um, not just see that in fuller measure, but delight in it. Satisfy our souls with our Savior this year. Uh, not with a, a thicker portfolio, not so much with a, uh, more leisure opportunities, not so much with uh, our team winning, um, but that we'd see those things as shadows of the glory. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would guard us against the enemy, that he would have no uh, platform, no uh, place to stand, no um, environment in which to speak, but that you would be the one that speaks, and you would speak through me uh, when you can and in spite of me when you must. Uh, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to say, first of all, uh, this morning that God is not afraid of our questions. 
I wonder how many of us would say, in my lifetime, I've had a lot of questions of God about how he works and so forth. And then might admit, but I felt like I can't ask them or I shouldn't ask them. God's not afraid of your questions and they do not make him nervous. Last August, a Hillsong worship leader, songwriter, um, musician by the name of Marty Sampson posted this on his Instagram account. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. I, I read that and I'm thinking, so you're saying that when you were in the faith that you had no peace and things bothered you and you weren't happy. It's just kind of interesting. He says, I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. And by the way, I found that interesting too because Hillsong Church in Australia is a um, charismatic uh, slash Pentecostal church, Pentecostal roots. And you would think that he would have had a front row seat to many miracles. But he says not many have happened. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's just not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the, quote, I just believe it, unquote, kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Now, reaction from the Christian world was swift. Uh, John Cooper, who is the lead singer for the band Skillet, uh, posted a uh, online uh, kind of an open letter. He didn't mention Samson by name, but this was within days after this posting. And basically said, it's time we stop letting our worship leaders um, kind of give us our theology. No offense, Andrew. Uh, it's time that we stop letting thought, um, thought producers be the ones that we get our convictions from and take our lead from. And Dr. Michael Brown, who is a writer, journalist, apologist, um, uh, came to Christ out of a Jewish background, uh, has been doing apologetics for almost 50 years, uh, responded open letter to Marty Sampson and said, not true. There have been many of us who have been wrestling with these questions for a very, very, very long time. Skillet pointed out that the Christian church has been wrestling with these kinds of things for 1,500 years at least. And it may have been because of uh, Dr. Brown's letter within a day, uh, Marty Sampson pulled this down off of his Instagram post and put up there, I'm not, I haven't lost my faith completely, but it's on very shaky ground. And interestingly enough, he put on, <clears throat> on that post a list of resources where people could go uh, to find some answers to the questions that he had posed. 
The series we start today is called Within Reason, and it is an apologetics series. Uh, The word apologetics might be new to some of you. Uh, It comes from the word uh, apologia, which is a Greek word, means defense of. And we see that surface in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, and I'm going to read this from the ESV because we can kind of pick that word out more easily. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That's that word. Defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so Peter's talking here about people who don't know Christ, who aren't followers of Christ, who might come up to you one day and ask you, why do you have this great confidence in Jesus? By the way, we have a team going out this afternoon again to Lancaster City to talk to people about Jesus. And so I would encourage you to be praying for them. And if you want, you can join them. Does anybody know for sure when they're meeting here at the church? Does anybody know? Is it 2 o'clock? 2? It's 2. And then uh, have some time of instruction and go out uh, 3 o'clock or so spend several hours downtown. So that's Peter's context. He's thinking about people that we're interacting with who don't know Christ and we want to be able to make a defense. Now that word apologia sounds like our word apology. It's not to apologize for your faith. It is to give a defense of your faith. And the word defense in English, uh, in our English vocabulary sounds like combat. That's not what this is. Now, I have to confess that I've always had kind of a sour taste in my mouth about apologetics. In fact, this is my 29th year of being a pastor. And in all those years, I have never preached a sermon series on apologetics. Uh, God's gotten a hold of my life. And so now I'm going to do a series on apologetics. Um, I I want us to be able to uh, give some answers to people that have questions and, but here's, here's my point. Um, my goal is not just to give, question, uh, give answers that can impress or satisfy, but they can actually help people come to a point of embracing Jesus Christ. That's our goal. And one of the reasons that I've had a sour taste in my mouth about apologetics over the years is especially early in my faith, I bumped into people who this was their, this was their thing. And so they would have all kinds of answers. They would encounter unbelieving people and they would, they would literally beat them up with their answers. In other words, they were all about winning the argument rather than, this is what it looks like to me, rather than winning the person to Jesus Christ. And if you've won the argument, but, they, you have, but you've not helped the, that person get closer to Christ, you've not won. And so that's why Peter says in this text, do this with gentleness and respect. This is a a winsome uh, uh, approach that we're trying to give to a person that needs Jesus. Um, One one of the things too that has changed in the apologetics movement over the years, these I've seen changed, is the word proof has been purged from the vocabulary. When we say we have uh, proof of God, we're just not being honest. Um, God himself has never said, you can kind of prove your way to me. He says in the book of Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please me. And so if you're going to try to tell somebody that you can give them the proof that they need, whether it's that God exists or whether Christ has truly been raised from the dead, that's not going to, to me, that's a non-starter. What we are giving people are 
evidences, things that can point them toward Christ, things that can help them um, maybe not convince them, but at least open the door to the possibility that faith is reasonable. And because that's our kind of our goal these nine weeks, we're not going to be looking at the scriptures as much as we normally would uh, do in a sermon series. Why? Because most people that you're going to talk to who are not Christians have not bought into the idea that the Bible is authoritative. And so you, you're going to be trying to do some things, <clears throat> excuse me, do some things that will dislodge them from their hostility toward God and toward things of faith. Now, I, I, I want us to think about the, uh, maybe the metaphor of a, a gate during these nine weeks. Now, some of you have gates, uh, have fences around your property. Um, uh, Todd Aaron, the guy that we had here uh, for mission conference three, three years in a row, uh, came to our house the first year and he looked in our backyard and he turned around and he had, he, his, voice, his face was just aghast. And he said, you don't have a fence around your yard? I'm like, no. He said, well, why not? Everybody has a fence around their yard. And this guy's from, uh, uh, where was he from? What's Bill Clinton's home state? Arkansas. He's from Arkansas. I'm thinking, who has a fence in Arkansas? I think there's only like 72 people that live in Arkansas. But we put, uh, we put fences around our property for good reasons. When uh, we first uh, started our family, we lived right a mile up the road here in Paradise, had a fence around the property. And it was a good thing because the road was like 10 feet away. Our house was two feet off the white line of the road, the one corner of it. And so you have a fence so you protect your family and run out and get hit on the road. You protect your family from the neighbor's pit bull or neighbor's pet bull. So always something you need to protect uh, people from. So you have a fence. But you need a gate in the fence so that you can get to your car, so that you can get out from where you are to where you need to be. A gate is a necessary thing. And there are people, in our, people that we know who don't know Christ, who for them, they see this idea of the Christian faith as something out there, and there's a fence or multiple fences in front of it. They keep them away. It might be the fence of, uh, I, I don't believe it's relevant in this day and age. It might be the fence of, I think uh, all religions are alike. Uh, I think science has disproved. It could be a thousand fences. And part of our goal in apologetics is creating a fence for them. But as I'm going to say this morning, that's not the end of the story. Because there are more people asking questions than unbelievers. There are some of us asking questions and our children are asking questions. And so apologetics can also be a way for us to secure the, the gate behind our faith and behind our children's faith and behind our brothers and sisters' faith here in the church. And I want to talk about each of those uh, groups this morning. So um, we're talking about providing answers that open gates to faith and secure gates behind faith. Providing answers that open gates to faith and secure gates behind faith. All right, let's talk about the different uh, audiences for answers, apologetic answers. 
Uh, first of all, we're talking about people who are not Christians having questions. And they have questions along these lines. Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Uh, did you ever have anyone ask you in the wake of 9-11, if you're old enough to have been around during then, uh, the 9-11 attacks, anybody ask you, where was your God last week? Where was your God last year when terrorists threw, flew planes into the Twin Towers, into the Pentagon, out there in Shanksville, killed thousands of people? Where was your God? And this is, I find this is the most asked uh, question, not only by non-Christians, but by Christians. How can we explain suffering? We can have a good God who's not powerful, all-powerful, and then he can't do anything about suffering. Or we can have an all-powerful God who's not good. But we can't, in our minds, reconcile a God who is all-powerful and yet is good. This is the number one question the Christians ask, the number one question, at least I've found, that non-Christians ask. Uh, how, do, how can you explain things like war and cancer and rape and homicide and domestic violence and drugs and child abuse if you have a good God who's all powerful. They have questions like how can Christians believe that a man came back from the dead? We're going to spend a Sunday talking about that. Here's one that is becoming increasingly important. Why do Christians say it's wrong to abort babies but it's okay to shoot animals? Now, if you are 40, 50, 60 years old, 70 years old, 80 years old, you're like, puh. But if you are a millennial, this is where the rubber meets the road because inasmuch as science has eliminated the idea of God, then all living things are on the same plane. There's nothing and no one that has, bears the image of God over against some other species. And if you think I'm uh, lost it, you just need to do a quick search on the internet. The idea that humanity is somehow on a plane, species plane above all other spe uh, species, just, it's just ch changing. It has been changing rapidly for the last 20, 25 years. And so that's, a, that's an important question that unbelievers want us to try to explain. Why, why do you hold the life of a child as more significant, more meaningful, more valuable, more important than the life of a chicken or the life of a deer or the life of a steer? Here's one that I shared a number of weeks ago. Uh, a unbeliever asked me about one time why do Christians uh, I'm sorry why did your God ask a dad to kill his son as a sacrifice he had read the story in Genesis 22 about Abraham being asked to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice and he just shook his head and said I, I, I don't I can't believe in your God if for nothing else because of that aren't all religions the same again very common uh, conviction and the, by people who aren't believers today, all religions are the same. Uh, someone might say Christianity doesn't work. Uh, this is a statement, but there's really a question behind it. Christianity doesn't work in a world where evil often has the upper hand. If you forgive your enemies, as Jesus said we're supposed to, they'll just take advantage of you. And some of you have experienced that. Some people will say, aren't all religions dangerous? 
Dr. Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book, The God Delusion. Uh, Dawkins is an atheist uh, and a very influential atheist. The title of that book was originally The Root of All Evil, meaning all religions, uh, that's where the root of all uh, evil begins. And then lastly, do you really think it makes sense to believe what's written in a 2,000-year-old document? And increasingly, that's not just a question being asked by unbelievers. That's being asked by people in the church, all kinds of churches, not just progressive churches, but evangelical churches as well. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to try to provide some answers to some of these questions. But God wants us to have answers for other people as well. And first and foremost, our children have questions. Especially your young children, right? Uh, Studies have shown that if you have a four-year-old child, that your child asks between two and 300 questions a day. Can I get an amen, mothers? (laughs) And and, uh, I I forget the title of the book now. This guy wrote uh, a a study that uh, some sociologists have done said that between the age of two and five, so in a four-year span, kids ask, on average, 40,000 questions. 40,000 questions. And no wonder, as a parent, by, by about age three, we go, stop! I don't want to answer any more questions. And yet, really, that's the worst thing we could do as parents. Because if we shut down that question-asking instinct they're going to stop asking not only the unimportant questions but the really important ones that's the last thing we want them to do kids are going to ask some they're going to ask of course trivial questions um why why can't i eat the dog food uh those kinds of questions but they're going to ask some big questions too if we encourage as parents if we encourage that question asking instinct they're going to ask questions like, Mommy, why can't, I hear from, why can't I hear God? Why can't I hear God? And they're going to ask some questions that are informed by trauma. Why did God let my mommy die? And it simply will not do to brush them off. They're whole worldview is being formulated at far younger ages than we might imagine. And it's never too late to get a head start. And of course, those of you who are parenting young children today, you have questions to answer that Betty and I never had to answer. Your six-year-old, your seven-year-old comes home and says, "Uh, Daddy, um, my friend Emily now says she's a boy she's Ethan Uh, can a girl become a boy I'm just really glad I didn't have to answer that question personally but these are the kinds of things that we're getting confronted with as parents today and you want to encourage that encourage your children why according to Barna research group the The kids represented here, the kids that grow up, make a profession of faith, they leave and go to college. 
70% of them are going to walk away from their faith by graduation. You believe that? 70%? That's almost three quarters. And our natural instinct is to go, that's, that's them evil college professors. Those evil secular college professors, those evil secular peers that our kids are getting around. And so what we need to do is just make sure that tell our kids we're not going to help pay for college unless you go to a Christian university. My friends, that's just delaying the inevitable. Sooner or later, your kids are going to be faced with all kinds of unimaginable ungodly stuff and, and, and I'm wondering if the responsibility for that goes way back prior to the college professors I mean you think about the conversations that we have with our kids and, and some of the meaningless conversations in the big picture that preoccupy our time. If our kids can that easily be moved off of the cross, you have to wonder how secure their seating was in the first place. Did, did we ever get beyond talking about academics and athletics and acceptable behavior with our kids? The old joke is that our parents of teenagers are most concerned that their kids don't do drugs and don't get anybody pregnant. And to a large degree, those things don't have a lot to do with faith. They can and should be the consequences of faith. But that for sure is not faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? that the things that we're going to be talking about the weeks to come are not just about how we can give some answers to people that don't know Jesus Christ. Out there, but some answers to kids in our homes that either don't know Jesus Christ or are on the way to following Jesus Christ or uh, have made a profession of, of faith in Christ but need a lot more moorings than they currently have. Your kids come home from college for the first weekend in their freshman year and they're gonna start bringing up things like, Dad, my best friend at college is now Rahim. He's a Muslim. And man, he's just a super guy. Do you mean to tell me that he's going to hell? Unless he turns to Christ. And I come home and say, you know, my professor says that all Christians are pedophiles and bigots. And that nobody who has an ounce of intellectual savvy gives any consideration to faith. Mom, is our faith really intellectually plausible? In this day and age, these are the kinds of things that we're going to hear from our kids. And starting at 16 
to answer some of these questions is not an option. One of the things I want to do during these weeks is provide some resources for you. And what, what a gift to live in the digital age. There's a lot of curses of living here, but there's a lot of wonderful uh, things as well. And so there is simply a ton of things available on the internet. Uh, there's a lot of books. Uh, one of the books I would commend to you, uh, moms especially, this is called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. Uh, the editor is Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Uh, she, she and another, a number of other women have uh, written this book. And they're in the trenches with their kids. And it's, it's really, really well wit written. If you have one of the uh, sermon outlines, this is on there. I'm not the whole way through it yet, but I'm underlining just a ton and ton of things in here. Very easy to <clears throat> understand things for us to understand easily, easily and convey to our, our kids and to help not just not just to give them answers but to how to teach them uh, to start picking out the lies in the culture evaluating culture she talks about uh, going to movies with your kids and then having conversations with them uh, and not just trashing everything uh, saying, you know, that was awful, that was awful, but to say, what, could, what, are, what are some good instincts that were portrayed in the movie, uh, in that book, and so forth. Um, another website that I've become uh, really intrigued by is ChristianMomThoughts.com. ChristianMomThoughts.com. Natasha Crane is an excellent uh, writer. She's a, a mother, has some really, really good articles out there, again, how to help your kids understand uh, and how to put things into uh, ways that they can un understand them. Good, good stuff. And there's just a boatload of resources out there uh, on the net. I'll try to give you some more as the weeks go by. Uh, not only do we want to try to develop some answers for our unbelieving friends, and uh, let me go back to that just a minute. There are people who specialize in this. They're called apologists. They this is what they spend their lives doing. They spend their lives writing. They spend their lives debating. 99.9% .9 of us will never be apologists. But all of us can and should develop a repertoire of some answers for some basic questions. Because I can tell you that most of the people out there who are not Christians are convinced that there's no, not just that there's no good answers, that there's no answers for the big questions that they have. And so all of us can develop some answers. We don't have to become an expert. We don't have to be highly, become highly proficient. But we can have a, a few good answers for our friends so that when we're sitting at the lunch table uh, at work or with our classmates and something comes up, they might hear a thoughtful, intelligent Christian say, you know, have given that some thought, and here's one possible answer. I'm going to have to try again, try to beat them up with it. Here's one possible answer. And I'm like, wow, there's a Christian that's already thought about this. So, enough said in that. So we have, our children have questions, we have unbelievers have questions, but we have questions as well. You have questions. Again, according to Barna, 65% of all evangelical Christians have had doubts about aspects of their faith while they were a Christian. I think the other 35% are just lying. I think we all have. 
And again, Barnett's surveys show at any given time, 26% of us, a quarter of us, are now wrestling with faith. Some kind of faith question. Uh, it's interesting, they say that millennials are two times as likely to doubt things about their faith as uh, those of us who are older. I'm not sure that's true. I think they, perhaps they're just being more honest about it. I, th I, I think that uh, today we are having doubts about more kinds of questions than we once did because it's, these things are being talked about far more than they were 40 years ago when I, you know, when I was 25 year old or, or 45 years ago. We are now wrestling with questions like uh, homosexuality inside the evangelical church. Is it really wrong, Pastor Keith? We're wrestling with questions like whether or not hell actually exists or is God really going to let anybody go to hell? Uh, we are wrestling with questions like suffering. That's become, that's become more and more and more talked about. Uh, we're wrestling with questions like Darwinism. Is it, is it true that God created the heaven and the earth or is it true that it just poof appeared? Spontaneous combustion. And I think again years ago we would not bring these kinds of things to the surface. We wouldn't talk about them in our care groups because for us, this means doubt, and after all, isn't doubt sin? Let me take you to John chapter 20 for a minute. John chapter 20, everybody knows doubting who? Doubting Thomas. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Some of the disciples have seen him, but not Thomas. Verse 24 of John 20 one of, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, nope, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing before, uh, among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And to his credit, Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, there's a number of things. It would be fun just to unpack this for half an hour. But there are a number of things that I think is important to see here in light of our conversation today. One, Jesus was willing to give him the evidence. Thomas, I heard you don't believe in me. What's wrong with you? Straighten up. Get your act together. Here you go. Stick your hand in that wound. Feel my nail prints. And he didn't, even after he said, I, I believe, he said, he said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And, and I think what he's saying there, there was a greater blessing for those who say yes without having all of it in place. 
He's not saying. I think probably the thing that influences us is James chapter 1. It talks about if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and he will give it to you. But when you ask, don't doubt. Because the one who doubts is is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And I think we have to be careful there. He's talking about one thing there. He's talking about whether or not we can trust God for wisdom when we ask him. Not sure that we can apply that everywhere else. And we certainly see pictures of doubting people in the scriptures. And think about Elijah. You know, he thought he was the only, he was the last guy that was following God. We think about John who sent word to Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Or did we blow it in identifying you as such? Is there somebody yet yet to come? There is, I think there's a lot more charity that God has for us when we struggle with doubt. I think doubt, on the one hand, presupposes belief. The people who don't believe don't doubt. Doubt presupposes belief. It's not, doubt is not the absence of faith. It's the presence of a faith that happens to be wavering. I shared with you a number of weeks ago a crisis of faith that I went through my first year in seminary. And it was terrifying. Uh, I'm thinking, here I am planning to be a pastor, and I'm doubting the, the core of what I'm going to someday promote and teach. And what am I going to do? But it was more important to me, for me to wrestle through that doubt and decide what I actually believe. And all through that process, I, I felt God's hand through that process as opposed to God white, washing his hands of me and say, Figure it out and then get back to me. God wants to walk with you through his doubt. And that leads me to my final uh, audience for apologetics, uh, audience for some answers to questions, and that is your brothers and sisters have questions. I, I wonder how many of us have been in a care group, have been in an ABF, some kind of church group, where someone has come in and, and just been honest and say, you know what, I, I am really, I lost a loved one who wasn't a believer, just passed away a month ago. I, I, and I'm wrestling with whether or not, I, can that person actually be in hell? I don't want to think that. And all of a sudden, all of my, my beliefs about the afterlife have been thrown into turmoil. And I, I need some help. Have you ever heard anything like that? Have you ever heard anybody come to a a group that you've been in, a group of Christians saying, I'm wrestling with whether or not God created the earth or maybe this all just appeared? Have you ever heard that? And if you haven't, we need to ask ourselves, even as a church, how come? Is Is this really, are we so fragile that we can't, help each other with these kinds of questions we should be and so just for the record as one of your pastors go for it abf abf leaders it's okay to entertain these kinds of things care group leaders it's okay to have these conversations we should be able to within the church we should be able to wrestle together with each other and with the lord through these through these kinds of difficulties And there are a lot of questions out there. 
uh, more and more of us have gay friends. And there's some wonderful people. We have a, a, a gay couple right next door to us. We had them over for dinner last year. And we spent three hours together. Had a wonderful time. They're wonderful people. Um, uh, they... Uh, one of them's trying to help me with my back. She says, if you just do this, it'll, it'll fix you. And bless her heart for caring that much. And we want, we're wrestling with that. Is that really that wrong, God? How can, be, how can I be sure Christianity is the only way? We're increasingly, increasingly being exposed to people who are from other faiths or no faith, who are wonderful people. And we wrestle with this. And we go through suffering. Why did my husband die at such a young age? And we wonder if God's true and real. Jude chapter 1, next to last book in your Bible. And we're going to wrap up. It's just one chapter long, verse 22. I love this line. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. How can we show mercy to each other if we don't know what each other is wrestling with? We must show mercy to each other as we wrestle through these things. You know, the gospel is not answered questions. The gospel is that Jesus is the answer. And answers may not convert your not yet Christian friend. Why? Because it's not just an intellectual uh, opposition that your unbelieving friend has to the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this age, Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ. It's not just obstinance. It's not just intellectual confusion. There's a spiritual blindness that has to be dealt with. And so I don't want you to put more stock in answered questions than you should. But answered questions can be a gate that leads people to Jesus. And it can be a gate that closes more securely behind our faith, our kids' faith, our friends' faith, our brothers' and sisters' faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, the only one who is the answer, the only thing that is the answer. Thank you that you have made your presence known in the created world, but as the writer to Hebrews says, in these latter days, you have spoken to us through your son. And oh, how we want our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors to know the son. And oh, how we want our children to know the son. And oh, how we want to drive our own roots down more, more deeply into the son. I pray for these weeks that we where we ask some of the hard questions that the culture is asking. And we ask some of the questions that our own children are asking, that we're asking, that our brothers and sisters are asking. That your Holy Spirit would speak to us. That the word of God would encourage us. That brothers and sisters would help us. And that we would go forth in, uh, at the end of uh, February a bit better equipped to be your instruments of transformation in a world that not only needs the right answers, but more importantly, needs Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.